And welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from my panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner. Thank you so much, Norman. I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program. Um, and today's program is uh, the, the overall, this is part two of a two-part series, um, and the, the overall title is Living with Lung Cancer. However, today's program is for caregivers, practical tips for coping with your loved one's lung cancer. So this is a program that is designed for caregivers or people who are their own caregivers and who actually want to hear about caregiving um, in terms of what they're doing for themselves or what their caregivers are doing. Um, and today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations as well as lung cancer organizations. And I do want to kind of call attention to the lung cancer organizations that are um, helping to uh, help to spread the word about the program. So uh, Free Me from Lung Cancer, Lung Cancer Foundation, Lung Cancer Research Foundation, Longevity Foundation. So I really want to thank them for their really coming on board to help spread the word about this program. And um, we have on the program today, and because of that, because of their interest in the program, and because also of um, our, all of our spreading the word, we have over 372 participants on the call today. And you come from all of the United States, and we also have international participants from Austria, Canada, India and the United Kingdom, so a bit of a global call as well. And today's program is supported by AbbVie and a grant from Genentech, and I really want to thank them for their support of this, this program. This actually this not only today's program, but this two-part series. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Ms. Georgie Cusack. Ms. Cusack is a nurse, a master's in nursing, and she's Director of Education and Patient Safety, Office of the Clinical Director, National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, Adjunct Nurse Leader, Nursing Research and Translational Science Clinical Center, National Institutes of Health. Ms. Kusak is going to be addressing us twice, so her first, this is her first part of the, the, this presentation, the definition of a caregiver, who are caregivers, and what research tells us about caregivers. It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Kusak. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, for the opportunity to be on the call today. I'd also like to take the opportunity to welcome all of the participants who are on this call, whether you're a healthcare provider, a person living with cancer, or a caregiver of someone with cancer, you recognize that this is an important role, and I applaud you for finding out more information on this important topic. So when we look at definitions for caregivers, the American Cancer Society defines a caregiver as a person who most often helps the person with cancer and is not paid to do so. The National Cancer Institute defines caregiving as a person who gives care to people who need help taking care of themselves. Both definitions seem like simple descriptions for such an important role. So who are caregivers? Caregivers may be those who help the patient with activities of daily living and healthcare needs at home. This includes spouses, partners, children, relatives, or friends. The caregiver works with the healthcare team to improve the patient's health and quality of life. They do many things that used to be done in the hospital or in doctor's offices by healthcare providers. Caregiving includes everyday tasks such as helping the patient with medicines, doctor visits, meals, schedules, and health insurance matters. They also provide emotional and spiritual support to assist the patient to deal with feelings and to make hard decisions. The caregiver has a very important job of watching for changes in the patient's medical condition while giving long-term care at home. Family caregivers can help plan treatment, they can make decisions, and carry out treatment plans all through the different parts of the treatment regime. So what does the research tell us about caregivers? The National Alliance for Caregiving, which is an organization that was established in 1996, is a nonprofit coalition of national organizations that focus on issues of family caregiving. The National Alliance for Caregiving states that there are nearly 44 million family caregivers in the U.S., nearly 20% of the U.S. adult population. They provide 
importance to uh, excuse me importance to excuse me societal and financial contributions toward maintaining the well-being of those that they care for. There's nearly three million Americans who are currently caring for someone with cancer, and many of these people play a key role in managing cancer. And again, in helping their loved one to adhere to the treatments, make decisions, and even address end-of-life concerns. After dementia, cancer is the second most prevalent condition that requires assistance of a family caregiver. In 2016, the National Alliance for Caregiving, in partnership with the National Cancer Institute and the Cancer Support Community, conducted a study to look at the challenges that face family caregivers, and they found the following. Cancer caregivers have diverse backgrounds and characteristics. 58% are women, and 60% have less than a college degree. The average age of a cancer caregiver is 53 years old, which is four years older than non-cancer caregivers. 88% provide care to a relative, and 6 out of 10 cancer caregivers provide care to someone that's age 65 or older. Cancer caregivers spend an average of 33 hours per week caring for their loved ones, with 32% providing 41 or more hours of care weekly, which is the equivalent of a full-time job. Cancer caregivers more often help with the activities of daily living, such as bathing, eating, toileting. They also do instrumental activities of daily living, which would be your shopping, driving, and managing finances. And they do medical and nursing tasks that our uh, non-cancer givers don't do. Alarmingly, 43% perform complex nursing or medical tests without any prior preparation. 8% of, uh, excuse me, 80% of caregivers report that their care recipient has been hospitalized at least once in the past year. And most of these caregivers interact with providers, agencies, and care professionals on behalf of their loved ones. Despite this involvement, many of the caregivers do not have conversations with the care providers about their needs. 54% have discussed the needs of their loved one, while only 29% discuss their own self-care needs. Only 15% of cancer caregivers report using respite services, although 35% feel that the services could be helpful. When caring for a loved one with cancer, um, caring for a loved one has a substantial emotional and financial implications. 50% of cancer caregivers feel very high levels of emotional stress and four in 10 want to have more help with managing their own emotional and physical stress. In addition, 25% uh, report high levels of financial strain as a result of their caregiving responsibilities. So employee cancer givers also report the need for work accommodations, such as coming in late, leaving early, and taking time off work to provide care, going from full-time to part-time, and or otherwise cutting back hours, or taking a leave of absence to provide care. So what this says is that we need to provide better support for our caregivers, including programs and policy initiatives. So the committee came up with two concentrated areas of recommendations. The first one is healthcare system reform, such as developing training materials for caregivers that are centered around the activities of daily living and really helping people to understand how to, to deal with those more fully, to develop and test evidence-based tools to provide clinicians with best practices to train caregivers, to not only make sure that the caregiver comprehends the complex medical nursing tasks, but also make sure that the clinician understands that the caregivers may have some barriers and limitations to that they need to assist them with. We really want to train physicians and other healthcare providers to engage with and encourage patients and families to participate in shared decision making. We want to be able to examine the um, patient and caregiver and provider dynamics and the knowledge of palliative care or creating advanced directives and decision making around end of life if that's necessary through research and practice. And there's a big call to implement hospital discharge rules that really support family caregivers, such as state-based care programs, which is caregiver advice record enable uh, through the Care Advice Record Enable Act. And this includes ongoing engagement with the caregiver across all settings and during care transitions. And then supporting the caregivers, again, uh, develop and test new mobile technologies and 
mobile applications to help them with the tasks of caring for the patient and managing finances, develop stress distress screening assessments for caregivers with appropriate referrals to resources so that they have those available, really look at developing respite and other evidence-based support systems for caregivers, uh, look at some of expanding some community-based solutions that are easy for caregivers to access and that are culturally adapted for caregivers, and then collaborate with employers to really increase the availability of strategies to enhance workplace flexibility and to include paid family and medical leave, um, teleworking, and other flexible leave programs to be able to support caregivers. So as you can see, we've done some work to support caregivers, but there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. I'd like to thank you for the opportunity to discuss these topics, and I'll now turn it back over to Dr. Mo. Oh, thank you so much, um, Ms. Kusek. That was really very informative, very comprehensive, and really set the nice stage for today's program. And our next speaker um, is Dr. Victoria Lai. And Dr. Lai is a medical oncologist, thoracic oncology service, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Lai is going to address the important role of the caregiver in communicating with the healthcare team, caring for the person with lung cancer, and follow-up care, and key questions to ask. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Lai. Uh, thank you, Dr. Messner. Um, uh, my name is Victoria Lai, and as Dr. Messner uh, uh, introduced, um, I am a thoracic medical oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, focusing on lung cancer. Um, I want to thank Dr. Messner for organizing this program and for the opportunity to join in on the call today. And um, whether you're a patient living with lung cancer or a caregiver of a a uh, patient with lung cancer, whether it's a f uh, family member or a friend or someone in the healthcare um, sector, um, uh, I'd like to thank you for um, joining us today and for taking time to um, have this uh, discussion with us. Um, I'd first like to cover the important role of the caregiver as a communicator with uh, the healthcare team. Um, I think we can all agree that cancer is a life-changing diagnosis and um, I work in the field of lung cancer, and it's uh, it, it's it's gen patients generally um, present with lung cancer um, and develop symptoms over a very short period of time. So for ma most patients, it comes as a, a much of a surprise. Um, and I would say that the role of the caregiver as a communicator is particularly important at the beginning of a patient's diagnosis when they're establishing care. I think at the beginning of um, a patient's initial diagnosis, a caregiver plays a tremendously important role as someone who can help to receive information and break things down for the patient. Um, even if someone is physically um, healthy and able to listen and comprehend information, um, during the initial visits with your doctors and other members of the healthcare provider, uh, healthcare team, there will be a lot of information that's thrown at you, um, for lack of better words. And it takes a lot of repetition um, to be able to fully comprehend all of the different pieces of information um, because of how complex um, the, the subject matter is and all of the moving parts in a patient's treatment. Um, so at the very beginning, a caregiver can help to um, be present at all the appointments, help to listen in on the information, and be able to take notes for the patient so that they can um, fully concentrate and focus on healing and getting better and moving ahead with the treatment. Um, and uh, during this time, the uh, caregiver can also help to come up with questions that the patient may not be able to think about just because of all of the different information that they're um, working to process. Um, the caregiver can also help to relay, in addition to receiving information from the healthcare team, can help to uh, mediate communication from the patient to the healthcare provider team. Um, patients may not know uh, what symptoms uh, to um, watch out for and what information is important for the healthcare provider team. And the caregiver can really um, take on the responsibility of mediating all of that information to the healthcare provider team and just taking that burden off of the patient. Um, of course, this is a delicate balance. I think depending on 
the personality of the patient and what their preferences are, um, it's helpful for the caregiver to have a frank conversation with the, um, with the patient um, being treated for cancer about their preferences, um, what type of um, responsibility and role they'd like for them to have in their care. It's important to help the patient feel empowered and not make it seem like they're losing their independence. But really, um, the main role, I think, of the caregiver is to be as supportive as possible, to take as much of the burden out of the logistics of um, organizing their care off of the hand of the patient and just letting the patient be able to focus on the key aspects of their care. Um, overall, um, as a caregiver, I think the most important thing is to um, remember that you're there for the patient and you're there as a patient advocate. Um, always try to put the patient first, they are the priority. And sometimes this is difficult to do for, um, in particular for family members because we may want things for our family members that they may not necessarily want um, and vice versa. And so it's important to be supportive and also always keep in mind that you're there as an advocate for the patient. We're there as um, someone who's uh, helping to carry out the wishes of the patient. Um, while um, at, in the process of doing so, um, constant ongoing communication with the patient regarding their goals of care and what their wishes are, um, which can evolve throughout the course of a treatment, is extremely important. And the caregiver can be a can play a critical role in helping to convey that from the patient to the healthcare team. Um, uh, during this time, you also have to remember to take care of yourself because if you don't take care of yourself in terms of your own physical and mental health, it will be extremely challenging to take care of the patient. Um, so I would say that in terms of follow-up um, key questions to ask, um, I encourage an ongoing dialogue between the caregiver and the patient to um, constantly reevaluate their goals of care, know what their preferences are, know how they like to receive information, and um, be able to act as a more effective mediator of a communication between the patient and the healthcare provider team. Key questions to ask um, from an initial visit would be to ask, you know, what side effects to expect from treatment, um, what is the scheduling going to look like, and really um, can uh, the caregiver can play a very helpful role in organizing all of those logistics and um, helping to find out, you know, who to reach out to when they need help, whether it's anything with uh, supportive care or medical help, who is the on-call person or the go-to person that they can reach out to when they need any, any additional resources. And I encourage all caregivers to um, reach out to their medical team about to obtain additional resources for caregivers specifically. Um, many cancer centers or academic centers, uh, treatment centers, have information and resources for caregivers um, specifically, and uh, in, which include workshops, um, resources, pamphlets that really help you to uh, take on this very important role and help you focus on on the key aspects that make you a effective communicator and, and be able to better advocate for the patient. Um, at this time, I'd like yeah. um, uh, Dr. Messner, at this time, I'd like to turn the program back over to you, and we can, um, uh, and I'd be happy to take more questions at the end. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Light. That was really excellent and really very sensitive to the um, to the um, to caregivers and, and their needs. So thank you so much. Um, and um, I'm going to bring back um, Ms. Kusak. Um, and Ms. Um, Kusak, again, is an oncology, she's a nurse, an oncology nurse, and she's Director of Education and Patient Safety, Office of the Clinical Director, National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, Adjunct Nurse Leader, Nursing Research and Translational Science Clinical Center, National Institutes of Health. And Ms. Kusak is now going to be addressing, so we're bringing her back, um, she's now going to be addressing helping to manage your loved one's treatment. 
the role of the caregiver in adherence or taking your pills on schedule, prescription refills, and scheduling appointments, coping with holidays, birthdays, and special occasions, and managing family, friends, partners, and traditions. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Kusak. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. As you can see, you have a very important role as a caregiver in helping to manage your loved one's treatment, and communication is the key. You may be, as uh, Dr. Lai said, you may be going to appointments to assist the patient to ask key questions and to serve as a second set of ears with, when the team is talking. But you may also want to speak with the doctor alone, or have them speak with the doctor alone to start to absorb the information to be cognizant that they may have other needs with that. Managing side effects can sometimes be challenging for lung cancer patients depending on the stage of their disease. So whether the side effects are from the treatment or from the disease, you'll want to maintain constant communication with your healthcare team to make sure that you have the tools and resources that assist you with managing such things as pain, shortness of breath, uh, skin rashes from maybe some of the targeted therapies uh, or an end fatigue, allowing the patient to decide which position is most comfortable, what time they want to eat and sleep and do other activities of daily living, and remembering that some days you may have a schedule, other days you may not be able to have a schedule, and that's okay. Just allow plenty of time for the activities as um, some of the side effects from treatment may be substantial or from the disease itself. And always know that you have that support system through cancer care and your healthcare team to assist you. So the role of the caregiver in adherence. Many of today's cancer treatments are made in pill form. Because they are taken by mouth, there may not be um, may not seem to be as important as injections or infusions given at the doctor's office. In truth, cancer pills are just as important as other forms of treatment that your loved one may be receiving. Because they're responsible for taking these pills, staying on schedule with the treatment is especially important, whether you're at work or home, with family and friends, or on vacation. However, this is not always easy to do. So there's many reasons that a person may miss a dose during treatment. In the busy hours of a typical day, you may simply forget to take the medicine, or you maybe decide to skip a dose on purpose because of the side effects or the cost of the pills. Another reason might be that over time, they may feel better and think they don't need the medicine anymore. However, each treatment is designed to work best when taken as directed by the doctor. Taking pills on schedule is known as adherence, and adherence is the key to getting the best results from your treatment. Unlike other cancer medicines that are given in the patient's doctor's office, cancer pills really put you in charge of your own treatment. This means that you may be responsible for remembering to take your medicine as prescribed and on schedule. Again, how does this affect your cancer treatment? Each of the cancer pills releases the active ingredient over a set period of time to keep a steady amount of the medicine in your body. A steady level helps the pills to work correctly, and it may also be helpful to think about each dose um, as being refreshing um, in terms of the amount of medicine in your body. When one skips a dose, the level of medicine is lowered, and this can lower your success for the treatment. So you just need to be cognizant of that when you're taking your treatment. On the other hand, if you miss a dose and you take another dose too close together, you may get too much of a medicine and cause you to have more side effects. So each pill has its own unique schedule. Some pills are taken once a day. Some pills are taken several times a day. Um, pills can also be prescribed for a week at a time, followed by a break for a few weeks or for a longer length of time. So it's important to discuss the information with your healthcare providers. Some of the barriers to taking your treatment and the pills on schedule, um, again, sometimes some of these pills need to be taken on an empty stomach and some have to be taken with certain foods or a certain amount of liquid. So again, contact your team with that. If you're an early riser or um, you like to sleep in, you would want to consider that when you're taking your medication. You also want to look at are there other complex conditions that you may have where you may be taking other pills. Um, if so, you're probably juggling multiple medicines at one time. So you want to make sure that you have one list for all of your medicines, any supplements that you're taking, any vitamins or over-the-counter medication so that you can review that with the team when you go back for your meetings. Planning ahead, when we're looking at lead time for refills, it's easy to forget about taking the pills around holidays or when traveling 
or if you're celebrating a special occasion. So some of the suggestions for that are to um, try to get yourself organized, use pill boxes to help keep the pills in order. That way you'll know whether you've taken them. Um, if you're taking a lot of medicines, you might need two pill boxes. Create a medicine checklist, as we said before. This way you'll know what pills you've already taken and which ones you still need to take. Establish a routine and stick to it every day. Um, this includes when you're traveling and enlist a support system to help you stick to your schedule. Sometimes if we're going on short trips, just a couple of days, we usually will have you stay on the same um, schedule with your medicines. For longer trips, we may have you slowly adjust your medication if there's a big time lag uh, difference of times. And then be sure to take extra couple of days of medications with you when you're traveling just in case um, you drop something or some, or you get delayed with your trip or, or anything like that. Um, with coping with holidays, the NCI has a really good list of eight tips that patients can use, but I think they're also good for family members. So the first one is be in tune with your own thoughts and feelings. Again, if you're having a happy moment and you still don't feel like you can enjoy it, try to step back and check in with yourself. Identify those moments when your thoughts didn't match the moment and try to find happy times if you can. Uh, get support. Have a list of friends and family who you can count on to listen to your concerns and that make you smile or encourage you. And so when you feel overwhelmed, you can give one of them a call and talk to them about it. Eating healthy foods, eating a well-balanced diet that gives your body nutrients is needed for helping you to function correctly. You want to limit sugary foods and alcohol to avoid dips in your energy. If you have dietary restrictions, plan your meals or um, eat before attending parties. Ask families and friends to help um, with meals. Start a new tradition. It's okay to say no to your old traditions. And ask family and friends if you're not up to seeing everybody, ask them to maybe video chat or send a personal note to communicate with you during the holidays. Um, if you don't have the energy to do that in person, take care of yourself. Identify activities that make you feel good and make you feel relaxed. If you like to walk, if you like to dance, if you like to get a massage, any of those activities where you're able to provide self-care for that. Don't blame yourself because things can sometimes get out of control, but they're not your thoughts. So you want to be mindful of self-blaming thoughts and instead try to be positive and focus on the future um, so that you start to feel better. And then make simple plans and pace yourself. And then lastly, in terms of managing family, friends, and partners and things like that, have family members visit for shorter periods of time. You know, you like to see everybody and you like to visit, but sometimes you don't have the energy. And so you just want to maybe try to um, help the, as a caregiver, help your family member um, by just maybe scheduling people, spreading out people when they come over and to really try to help in that, um, you know, with that. Remember to take breaks during holidays and special occasions for yourself. Try to do something outside of the home. Identify foods that your um, that your patient may like or that your family member may like or dislike so you can have family and friends bring the food over so that you don't feel the burden of making everything all the time. Or assign a friend to coordinate meals. Sometimes people don't know what they can do to help, so they appreciate if you give them something to do. As a long-distance caregiver, sometimes it's hard because you don't feel like you're part of the scenario. There's lots of things that you can do. You want to stay in touch with the local caregivers and the loved ones with cancer. Be willing to talk about difficult topics. Um, do not underestimate your role as a, as a uh, provider from a distance. You may want to coordinate the medical appointments for them. Sometimes just calling up and making the appointments and things like that takes the burden off the person that is local so that you feel like you're being helpful and they, it helps them out also. Um, you may also be the person that updates family members on the progress. Maybe you touch base with the caregiver that's at the home and then you call everybody else to update them to kind of give them a break. Um, keeping track of paperwork and bills and coordinating transportation or meal services, prescription refills. So there's many things that you can do to help out to make sure that the patient is feeling uh, supported and that your caregiver, that is a local caregiver, is feeling supported. Please remember that you are an important member of the healthcare team and that you need to take care of yourself so that you can better take care of your patient. 
it's been a pleasure to participate in this conference, and I'll turn it back over to you, Dr. Mesner, and I'm happy to entertain any questions at the end of the presentation. Well, thank you, Ms. Kusak. That's really been quite the yeoman's part that you've presented on, and um, thank you. Um, lots of information for people, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Mr. Wynn Burkle. Mr. Burkle is an oncology social worker, um, and Mr. Burkle is Cancer Care's Director of Social Service in our Long Island office and our Lung Cancer Program Coordinator um, for Cancer Care. And Mr. Burkle will address uh, coping with the stresses of caregiving and self-care tips and Cancer Care's free psychosocial services and programs. And Mr. Burkle will be really talking from the wealth experience that he's had working with people over many, many years in the support groups that he's led um, for caregivers at Cancer Care. So it's really my great pleasure and honor to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Mr. Burkle. Thanks, Carolyn. And I think we'll take a look at Cancer Care Services. And um, I'm sure most of us remember the time that we moved into our first new home or even our last new home. And I'm also sure that uh, most of us wondered how we were ever going to find our way in this new community or neighborhood. Uh, many of us were fortunate enough to get a visit from the welcome wagon or maybe a very helpful neighbor who helped us find the nearest supermarket, service station, house of worship, school, and all the other services so essential to support our daily life. Uh, the more things we were able to connect with in our new neighborhood, the more we felt that we had things under control. Um, becoming a caregiver for a lung cancer patient is in some ways very much like moving into a new neighborhood. Our cancer pushes us into a strange and sometimes scary new environment, and we really don't know where anything is and what we can do to get some control over a very difficult change in our lives. Fortunately, Cancer Care serves in the role of that good neighbor who is there to help you find your way in this strange new place. Uh, as an example, Cancer Care's friendly website, uh, www.cancercare.org, in addition to providing a wealth of cancer information and topics, serves as a convenient entry point to connect with the many services which Cancer Care makes available free of charge for lung cancer caregivers and their patients. Uh, and Cancer Care's educational program uh, reaches out to include um, this an array of Connect Education workshops, very much like uh, today, uh, that provide information on coping with the physical and emotional impact of cancer, such, such as what we're talking about today. Um, replays of these workshops are available online at Cancer Care's website uh, and via your phone. Uh, and some people find it convenient to download these replays uh, to their iPods and MP3 players so that they can listen to them while they're, they're commuting, which is kind of a neat trick. Um, and while we're talking about personal electronics, um, if you have an iPhone, do check out the Cancer Care Meditation app, uh, which feeds features guided meditation sessions and inspirational talks, as well as 100 free hours of beautiful, soothing music and natural sounds to address the needs of caregivers. Um, I've gotten a lot of feedback from our caregivers uh, about having that meditation app and how helpful they find it. Um, it has features on, on sleeping and dealing with stress, and uh, it's become a big hit. So I do encourage you to go to the App Store and download it and check it out. Um, the education program provides our well-known Cancer Care Connect booklets, which are available free of charge, packed with up-to-date information on treatments and coping strategies to help cancer caregivers. Over the years, we've distributed several million of these very popular publications. Uh, you can order it through our website um, and uh, also through uh, connecting with uh, the Cancer Care uh, uh, helpline by speaking with one of our social workers who can help you with that order. Um, our support services are provided by professionally trained staff of experienced oncology social workers, and they're there to assist folks like you in dealing with the many issues which arise from your loved one's diagnosis of lung cancer, and issues such as um, emotional issues in which they can assess uh, your situation and provide appropriate, helpful counseling and psychosocial interventions, um, assistance with some of the practical issues that would face as caregivers, including financial assistance for some of the costs in, in, incurred when you're dealing with helping someone through cancer treatment, um, in terms of finding resources, uh, which our social workers refer folks to the many other organizations and agencies established to help lung cancer patients assistance in navigating the system and the social workers assist people in understanding how to best manage the many new relationships involved in healthcare. 
and assistance with communications in where the workers are skilled at helping folks learn how to best communicate with their health care providers, employers, friends, and family members about this new situation. So um, we provide these uh, this assistance in a, a number of helpful settings um, at our national office and the regional offices in the tri-state New York metropolitan area. Folks can receive individual and group counseling face-to-face -face, or over the phone where people from across the U.S. find immediate assistance by contacting the Cancer Care Helpline at 1-800, I'm sorry, Hopeline at 1-800-813-HOPE and longer-term assistance through individual phone counseling with a cancer care social worker. Uh, and online, where people from across the country share concerns in professionally-led online support groups. Now, support groups play a very special role for, for caregivers at, at Cancer Care. Um, and keep in mind that the uh, the overwhelming burden of, of caregiving um, in, in requires that the ca the caregiver take on both their own role and the role of the person who's dealing with lung cancer. So um, it's a situation where the uh, it, it's it's more than double because you have to consider that the person is also in, involved in, in being oftentimes the breadwinner, continuing to work and working for not only the income but also oftentimes uh, to retain the, the health care insurance. Um, and, and also becoming the, the business manager, has been mentioned earlier, as far as arranging and going to doctor visits, doctor phone calls, uh, making appointments, uh, chasing down oftentimes uh, scan and, and test results, um, running to the pharmacy when uh, the doctor prescribes a, a new uh, medication, either for treatment or to, to palliate some of the, the side effects. Um, acting as the, the kind of the hub of information central, and that information is about the, the patient, and providing information to uh, friends and, and neighbors and family, maybe colleagues at, at work. Um, and, you know, we find that a lot of our caregivers are, are dealing with multiple patient caregiving and that they're caring for uh, elderly parents or caring for uh, children or adult children with, with disabilities. So there's a tremendous uh, load on, placed up upon them. I, I don't think oftentimes the, the rest of the world recognizes. They just take it for granted that that's the person, that, that's the caregiver, not understanding how much is, is placed on them. So uh, Carol and I were talking the other day about how important the need for self-care is um, uh, for caregivers and you know, taking time and all that. And I, and I mentioned to her that you know, from many years of uh, running a uh, caregiver support group, that's greeted oftentimes with that bit of advice, while very well-meaning, is greeted with tremendous skepticism <clears throat> in terms of how little time folks have to, to care for themselves and how oftentimes the idea of taking time away from the, the caregiving role, okay, provides them with a sense of guilt or a sense of anxiety that uh, they, they really uh, find it very difficult to, to get away. Um, certainly, we encourage people, uh, whenever possible, when as far as the patient condition is, is to have someone come in and and sit with the, the patient or, or or be there, uh, kind of as a backup to give the the caregiver at least a few hours away, maybe, uh, to get their hair done, go to a, a movie, um, visit a friend, have lunch, something like that. And we do really encourage those. What's interesting is that. The support group itself oftentimes fills in and play, plays that important self-care role. And, and our caregivers will tell us that this is my one hour and a half a week where it's strictly mine and strictly my, my getaway and my escape um, to, to be with these special care, care group friends. And um, it, it's interesting because I don't think we really figured that out until uh, they, they started telling us that. And so um, certainly it's that sense that is often mentioned about um, support groups, like we're, we're all in the, in the same boat. Uh, but it's a place where you don't have to explain yourself. Everyone else knows. And it's a place where you can express the feelings openly that you kind of hold back and don't express oftentimes um, around the family or with colleagues at work. Um, and it's that, that special uh, kind of escape that, as one person called it, my emotional oasis. And, and I thought that was you know, quite a, a good description of it. 
one of the things that, that interests me is that you know, we've talked a little bit today about communications, and communications are discussed a great deal uh, among caregivers. Um, so it, it, they, when they talk about um, the, the doctor visit, and which are, is coming up or something like that, others will supply how important it is uh, to have um, a, a list of questions, and a list should be uh, in priority with your most important questions at, at the top of the list, so to make sure that those are the questions that always get answered. And then also um, the importance of uh, the day ahead or early of the day of the appointment, uh, sending a copy to, of the, the list of questions to the doctor and hoping that he or she has a chance to uh, scan them. Um, but it, it's also important to bring extra copies so that when you have the, the conference, um, everyone, the caregiver, anyone else who's accompanying us, uh, sort of assistant care, caregivers to, to the uh, the conference, and for the for the doctor. So if the doctor hasn't picked up his or her copy, you can hand it to them and say, "We'll, we'll hear," so that we're all on the same page, doctor. And um, the other thing that the caregivers so mentioned is the importance of after the meeting, okay, and either in the waiting room or um, out in, in in the car before you turn on the ignition. Everyone who is in on the meeting to sit down and do a, a debrief, and everyone share exactly what what they heard, and sort of synthesize this uh, overall sense of what what came out of that discussion. That could be so helpful. Um, we talked a minute ago about being information central, and um, I, I've been so impressed with, with some of the things people have come up with to, to manage. Uh, the need that other people seem to have about wanting a lot of information uh, uh, about the patient and sometimes a, a reluctance on the caregiver to not want to get into it too much. So they came up with what I call the, 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 the quick answer, the stop, and the pivot. So the quick answer is everything's going as well as expected. Okay. And leaving it there. And then immediately the stop is thank you so much for asking. And that basically ends the, the conversation because it sort of stops uh, for additional questions. And then the pivot, right after you say, thank you so much for asking, you say, and how was your daughter's trip to Hawaii? The pivot is you turn the conversation, okay, back to the person asking the questions. And the, the neat thing about that is that we've <laughs> learned that, that people always like to talk about themselves. So it, it's, a, it's a pretty neat trick. Um, the other one is, uh, it, I call it the co-option or the request co-option. When uh, folks are asking or in, in inviting, and there are times when a caregiver really, they don't know how to say no, but they don't have the time or uh, they, they really realize that it's going to conflict with their ability to care or their ability to just kind of uh, take a nap. So when someone asks something, um, the magic phrase that, that everyone calls it here is, um, a very simple phrase, I know you'll understand. So I know you'll understand um, that I won't be able to, to come uh, to your uh, bridge club party next week uh, with things the, w the way they are. And hardly, n hardly anyone is ever going to respond, no, I don't understand. People tend to be, uh, you're just giving them the respect of saying, I know you as an understanding person. And it's very hard for them to come back against that. So um, I know none of us as, as caregivers ever expected that we were going to find ourselves in, in the neighborhood of lung cancer and caring for a lung cancer patient. But now that you're here, be assured that Cancer Care, like that good neighbor, is here with you. Connect with us at www.cancercare.org or by calling us at 1-800-813-HOPE. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Burkle. That was wonderful. And uh, now we do have time for questions. And so um, I'm going to ask Norma to bring all of our speakers on board and we're going to try to take as many questions as possible. So, Norma, if you could explain to everybody how to queue up for questions. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. If you wish to... Uh, those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first mm -hmm. question comes from Emil S. Your line is open. Uh, Two-part question. How do you deal with an obstinate 91-year-old who believes he knows better than you how to deal with the challenges he faces? And second question is what additional caregiving services are provided by the New York City Department of Health 
the VA and or Medicare. Well, thank you, Wendell. I mean, thank you, Wendell. Those are great questions. And I'm going to ask Mr. Burkle if you could address them to start with. Yeah, I'll I'll start with with the obstinate 91 year old. But as far as the the services, maybe someone else can pick up on that because I'm I'm not up on that area. Um, so w one of the things is that uh, probably that's one of the most frustrating parts of being a caregiver, um, and probably the the way that you can handle it is to go with the flow um, r rather than than kind of to try and, and stop it or to turn it around, um, agree, but as you agree, slowly change some of the wording that you're agreeing to and slowly c giving them credit for it until more and more um, they're taking it in as, as their own. Um, it takes a lot of patience, uh, but it's a lot easier and usually much more productive than uh, fighting it. Thank you. Um, thanks so much. Um, and um, so, Neil, the second part of your question really has to do with really getting some practical and financial help. And I would say um, there are a lot of different resources out there, and I would really just recommend calling uh, the Cancer 800 number because there are our, our oncology social work staff will be able to go through all the details of the VA benefits, um, Medicare benefits, and also just any financial assistance that you're um, that you know that that the, your 91 year old that the person that you're concerned about would might be able to benefit from. So, um, but there are um, a huge number of both city, state, federal, and of course nonprofit funds available to help with different needs. So I think um, if that helps, and for anybody else on the call too who's concerned about just practical and just the financial concerns, um, are, uh, I can't think of a better place to start with but just calling our own college, calling our 800 number, 1-800-813-4673, and um, uh, our staff would be able to help with that. Um, and, um, and we have another question in, uh, on the phone, I believe, Norma, is that correct? Our next, yes, our next question comes from Christine M. Your line is open. Christine, you might want to check your mute button. Christine, are you there? Okay. You might want to yeah, check. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not here. Okay. Yes. Oh, I you got are. It. Oh, okay. good, Christine. Okay. Okay. Hi, Christine. <laughs> Hi. And so Hi. my okay. question is has to do with um, not being the primary caregiver. My, it's my mom has cancer my dad is the primary caregiver and it's difficult to manage um i think the balance between agency and then being the making the decisions and no not even necessarily sharing all the medical everything going on but there was a case with like medical marijuana being something that could be really helpful because my mom was losing a lot of weight, but there are ideas around it. So it, it's how to balance agency when you know there are agency when there's a feeling that, or there's even knowledge that something could be helpful. And um, yeah, so that's what I'm I'm wondering about. And so you're um, so your one of your parents is the primary um, the the person. Yes, my dad is the primary caretaker. Mm -hmm of my mom and and there's also I mean I'm also a big caregiver like very present and and with it but so I guess it's negotiating those those conflicts or con conflicts of ideas in a sense Excellent. I'm not Excellent sure question. if that's a, a question. bigger question it's a wonderful question because it's a question that affects probably adult children in general, um, in a, in, and so I think that's a great, great question. Um, and Dr. Lai, do you want to comment on that because it's probably something that you probably deal with a lot um, as a medical oncologist, in which you know there's um, there there are adult children, and yet the primary person is perhaps a spouse. And uh, how is that? How do you usually negotiate that in the hospital? Um, yes, so um, I would recommend that uh, it, it sounds like you're also very involved in your uh, mother's care um, and uh, even though your father's the primary caregiver. So 
uh, I don't know how uh, the, your current situation is in terms of the visit, but I would really encourage that when she goes for her doctor's appointments, um, if, if everyone um, can be involved and if there are any concerns or suggestions um, that the patient, uh, that your mother or anybody else in the family has, um, to bring that up during the visit and uh, your mother's um, physician can really help break it down and go through the pros and cons of all the different choices. And ultimately, I think our, our goals are to, um, you know, provide information in as uh, simple a f format as possible and then let the patient make the decision and, um, and ultimately they have to be comfortable with the decision. But having everybody involved in, uh, in an ongoing conversation would be the best way, um, I believe, to tackle this, uh, these types of issues. Excellent. Thank you. And Ms. Kusak, do you want to comment as well? Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. And I think that, you know, sometimes for family members, and I'll, I'll tell you, my dad had lung cancer. My mom was the primary caregiver, and I was in there also at the, just in the same situation that you were in. And so we did a lot of that where we would take it back to the physician and sometimes hearing it from somebody different, um, you know, sheds a different light on it for them. And so, you know, you can express your concerns, they can express their concerns, and then you come to resolution. Ultimately, it's, you know, the patient's decision in terms of what they want to do um, overall. But I think that that active dialogue and communication is the key with that so that everybody is a part of that decision-making, but everybody, you know, everybody has a say in it and then come up with the final decision. Thank you. Thank you. And, Mr. Burkle, do you want to comment just on the kind of role of counseling or just support for the adult children in, in these situations? Yeah, and sometimes in the communication um, and be, between a caregiver who um, has what, what they believe is, is the right information, um, if they can get that information or at least talk about it with a, a social worker, a therapist, or, or a doctor, and then when they bring it back home, okay, rather than saying it's their idea or saying, I think you should, uh, you can say, uh, the doctor suggested. Um, I think we find oftentimes that that old saying that a prophet in their own country is without honor. And so uh, when you bring it from outside, sometimes it, it carries a lot more import uh, to help people uh, accept it and, and make the change. Excellent. Thank you. And, you know, we do have um, Cancer Care, um, so we have both um, telephone support groups and online support groups. We have about actually 138 online support groups, and we have online support groups for family members, for adult children, for caregivers, for people living with lung cancer, um, for really the whole spectrum of everyone, and actually to some extent, um, again, I, I would certainly urge our caller or any caller on the phone with these concerns to go ahead and call our 800 number at Cancer Care um, and speak to one of our oncology social workers to see. Sometimes people find a group format very helpful as well. I think as Wynn mentioned earlier, a group can make a big difference. You're with people who are in the same, walking in your same shoes to some extent. They may walk slightly differently than you do. They may have different ideas, but nevertheless, you're all in that same shoe together, and so people often find that very, very helpful as well. So um, these are great questions, I have to say, and, and great, um, great participation by everybody. Um, so I have another question in front of our online participants. Um, so uh, my mother is losing so much weight ever since starting chemotherapy. I don't know what to do. She doesn't want to eat. What are some foods that can start? her appetite that works for someone with lung cancer. So, Dr. Lai, do you want to take that one up to begin with? Uh, sure. Um, so, uh, what we usually uh, explain to patients is that uh, when they start treatment, uh, you the most important thing for them is to try to maintain their weight. Usually patients come to us having lost um, anywhere from a little bit to a significant amount of weight. So we usually try to start with maintaining the weight, and that's really important to keep up their energy level, to keep up, keep up their fitness so that they can undergo the treatment. Um, uh, one of the most difficult things that we struggle with is when patients become so weak that they can't actually be a candidate or undergo treatment, even though there may be a really great treatment option available for them. 
Um, so we always want to try to prevent uh, patients from getting to that point. Uh, when patients are undergoing chemotherapy, the, depending on the treatment and the particular medicine, it really has a huge impact on your taste buds. And so what we tell patients is that things that m your favorite foods and things that may have tasted um, wonderful to you in the past may give you issues with um, uh, stomach upset or nausea and um, just not very appealing to you anymore. So we encourage patients to try a variety of different foods, things that they might not have liked before might actually taste okay um, now, or they might find that they really like it, or that they, uh, these, new, these foods that they typically don't eat might sit better with their stomach, um, depending on their particular treatment. Um, and we encourage patients to eat uh, whatever they can tolerate in order to keep up the calorie count. That's really the most important thing. Um, and uh, now is the time where we have a little bit of leeway um, in uh, you know moving away from a strictly a, a, a very strict and healthy diet of mostly fruits and vegetables. Sometimes you know if ice cream is the only thing that sits well with you, we we encourage that because the main thing is keeping up the calorie count and really not restricting yourself and just trying to eat whatever eat whatever tastes good to you to um, be able to keep up your weight. Things like uh, nutritional supplements, Boost, Boost Plus. Um, uh, protein shakes that pack a lot of calories into a very small amount of volume, those are very helpful for patients who don't have much of an appetite. And in extreme cases where um, patients are eating and they're trying and they're still losing weight, um, uh, I encourage um, caregivers and patients to talk to their doctors about uh, sometimes going on a very low dose of a stimulant using Steroids, oral steroids can really help to jumpstart your appetite, um, but definitely that should only be done under medical supervision. Excellent. Thank you. Um, any other comments? Ms. Kusak, do you want to comment on that? Or? Yeah, and I think also, um, depending on where your mom is getting treated, if you um, have any kind of nutritionist or anything like that that's associated with the practice or with the hospital that she's going to to get her treatments. And then also looking at the underlying cause of what's causing it, uh, whether she just has no appetite or maybe she's having some heartburn or some nausea, different things like that, because sometimes just changing the medications that patients are taking um, might be able to help that along and stuff. So really trying to get at the root of what is actually, uh, you know, causing the weight loss. And as Dr. Lai said, the maintenance piece is what we really want to do, you know, so that they don't lose additional weight. But the boost products are good. Um, any kind of protein shakes are good to keep up the, the protein level. Excellent. And, Wynn, do you want to add anything as well? Yeah, I think the the previous speakers had some wonderful suggestions, uh, but also just as, as a possible help or supplement to, to what they suggested, National Cancer Institute has a wonderful book called Eating Hints for Cancer Patients. Um, you can get to it uh, to their, at their online site and you can download it. Uh, what I like about it is the, the hints it gives about things such as, as grazing and, and smaller portions and uh, thing, things of that nature, so that might be something helpful. Excellent point. And we will actually, um, you'll be getting an evaluation after the program today, but it's not just an evaluation. We also include all sorts of resources for you. And so we'll definitely include any resource that was mentioned with a link to the Eating Hints um, booklet at the um, National Cancer Institute. It's a great booklet, so thanks for suggesting that, Win. Um, absolutely. And there is always a focus on food and eating. Um, actually, uh, for many cancers, actually, it's a, it is a, um, it's, it's like a tangible thing that one can kind of focus on and, and of course, weight, and, and those are things you can measure. And I think um, there's a lot of concern across the board by caregivers and family as well. And we have another question, which is um, about exercise, actually. My husband had stage one lung cancer a few years ago, and he's been in remission for three years. I'm constantly afraid that he will have it again. I do my best to have us eat healthy foods. Um, but how can I convince him to exercise? How can I ease my fears that he will be sick again? 
So in terms of the cancer coming back, that concern, we did a program yesterday on fear of recurrence um, for a different type of cancer, and you might want to listen to that program as a podcast. But I would like our, our speakers to address, and I'll start with Dr. Lai, both the concern about the cancer coming back, but also the issue about exercise. Um, so um, if, I, if I understood correctly, um, it seems like your husband is three years out from stage one lung cancer. So mm-hmm. I think that um, for there are subgroups of stage one cancer, but the cure rate for stage one cancer is, um, is uh, excellent. Um, upwards of 70 to 80 percent, depending on the the substage, and uh, typically that risk of recurrence is highest in the initial two years. So if he is three years out, um, of course it's not 100 percent, but I would say that the chances at this point, the chances of uh, his disease not recurring is much higher than recurring. Um, so that hopefully should provide some reassurance. In terms of exercising, I think that. Uh, um, you know, it doesn't exercise in general is helpful for everyone. And if he's already three years out from his treatment, there shouldn't be any limitations in terms of his physical ability to exercise. Um, so really, just tr- trying to encourage him and trying to engage him in physical activity. Um, uh, exercise is, is, is it's, it's, you know, it's difficult to make time for, um, particularly as um, uh, everyone has busy schedules in their lives. Um, but really just trying to find a physical activity that they really enjoy and have them stick to it, um, even just a, two or three times a week, can really help with um, overall uh, general well-being. Um, the most important thing for him, though, moving forward, in addition to, of course, a healthy diet and regular exercise, is to continue following up with his medical oncologist. We usually recommend follow-up to at least five years uh, following the initial diagnosis. And then um, beyond five years is really up to the practitioner. Um, but uh, as, as I wanted to um, uh, mention, really the risk of recurrence is the highest in the first two years. So th- him being three years out, um, that that's, that itself is a reassuring fact. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. That's um, excellent. And, and Ms. Kusak, do you want to add anything as well? You know, I think it's just, as Dr. Lai says, encouraging him to do something that he wants to do is probably the best way to get him to exercise. So, you know, if he likes to go walk around a lake or something like that, just any type of exercise that he would want to do. Some people don't really like to do the rigorous exercise going to the gym different things like that, so just encouraging him to take walks in the evening or to do some type of exercise like that is, you know, better than no exercise at all. And so maybe that would help to stimulate him to um, to do other activities. And, you know, it's it's hard to um, to entice somebody to do that. I mean, they have to be willing to do it themselves. And so, you know, don't stress yourself out, get yourself all stressed out because you're worried so much about that. I mean, it's Dr. Lai said the recurrence rate, um, you know, is not as high after two years. I'll, I'll tell you, my dad did have a stage um, stage one lung cancer also, and he lived for 10 years after his um, initial diagnosis and did very well. He actually also had COPD, and he had passed away from COPD, but, um, but did very well. And he, again, we just encouraged him to do a lot of things that he enjoyed doing because he wasn't a big exerciser either. So I think just trying to hang in there, be happy with, you know, the success that you're having and uh, and just move forward. Thank you. Thanks. And Mr. Burkle, do you want anything? Yeah, just uh, it's helpful to keep in, in mind that, that besides, you know, the cardio side and, and, and the idea of, of weight management with exercise, uh, as, as we get older, it's important to be uh, considering uh, things that uh, promote uh, and, and keep our flexibility uh, and balance. And so there are lots of thing, exercises that can be done around the house, and they're, they're online to um, keep ourselves uh, so that we don't topple over and uh, also that uh, we remain flexible and uh, don't pull muscles or tendons or things like that. So I would suggest looking, researching some of that on web and, and applying things, just household-type things, uh, r- rather than uh, trying to uh, do it at, at, at the gym. 
And actually, there are actually a lot of people who get a consult with a physical therapist when they're undergoing treatment, maybe once or twice. They actually, and the family member may want to come along with them when they go, but may actually suggest some very simple things that they can do that really help with balance. And, and, and I think Wynn makes an excellent point um, that risk of falling, and those are things that really, um, as one gets older, those are really important things to address and, and to actually, um, you know, take advantage of your healthcare team, even ask the question about that, what can we do to prevent that, and um, that's really that's really important. And there are a lot of very practical things that can be done, too. So, well, this has been an amazing call. I have to say we probably could go on for another hour or so, but we I did say this would be an hour program, and so I want to thank our speakers who've really been excellent, really a great great speakers, and, and also great questions, both on the telephone and online, um, which really add to the call. They really add um, a whole other dimension to the call and bringing up um, other other comments for the uh, other issues that the speakers can then address, and that's really so important. Um, now, I and I also um, and I want to thank all of you who have been listening as well um, and who are on the call and took the time to be with us today, which is terrific for caregivers to do because we know that caregivers often um, – it's hard for sometimes caregivers to do this sort of thing, so we're really appreciative of that. Um, and I, we have reviewed a lot of the services that you can access from Cancer Care, um, but I do want to stress, I know that many of you, in addition, we don't want to ever sidestep your healthcare team, and so indeed, to really take advantage of your healthcare team with any questions or concerns you may have. Um, and um, that's they're the first place to go to, of course, your go-to group to go to. But nevertheless, um, for those of you who'd like to check things out and look for other things, uh, we certainly always recommend the National Cancer Institute. They have an 800 number, 422-6237. Again, you'll get that actually after the program and your evaluation. And they also have a wonderful um, uh, website, um, www.cancer.gov, and they actually have information specialists there. There's a live help feature where you can post your question, and that's really good for people in the U.S. and internationally as well. You can post your question, and their information specialists will come back to you with all sorts of tips and information that can be very helpful to you. So um, that that's that's just a great resource to have. And then a lot of the collaborating organizations that we work with on this program today who whose specific focus is lung cancer, those are also wonderful organizations. You know their information is going to be credible and, and good to go to. So that's really important to take advantage of them. And again, you'll get that in the evaluation form as well. And for those of you who wish to pursue further help from Cancer Care, please do call us. Um, you can call us on the telephone or on a home number, or you can visit our website um, at um, cancercare.org or call our our phone number at 1-800-813-4673. But most importantly, as we conclude the program today, you really don't want anyone, one of you to feel that you're alone. We want you to now know that you're part of this community or this neighborhood, as Wynne points out so well, Mr. Burkle, that we, this neighborhood of support, there's a lot of organizations out there to help you, and there are, a lot of them are free, actually, and to take advantage of those free services um, so please do, we know that you all have moments when you do feel alone, and that's normal, And um, but but nevertheless, just know, tuck away that you also can get just some support when you need it um, uh, at moments when you're really having a hard time. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day. <laughs>